0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Ander. He is a world renowned medical doctor and scientist for his pioneering research with Dr. Vincent Folletti, showing that child abuse is an underlying cause of medical, social, and public health problems. While working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC in Atlanta, he was one of the co-authors that led the large-scale study to track the effects of childhood trauma on health throughout the lifespan. They end up terming this study the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study or the ACE study, Or, and um, many people listening to this are familiar with this concept. This study fundamentally reshaped many people's understanding of the underlying causes of developing susceptibility to mental health and physical disorders these findings resulted in more than 200 publications for dr ander but 70 specific publications on this study and they've been re- and the most important point here these studies have been replicated around the world thank you for giving us your time Dr. Ander, it is a really great privilege for me and my audience to have you on this podcast and, and for your time, as you have really fundamentally changed the direction of my own research lab, and specifically the understanding of how the brain works. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, it's my pleasure. I'm honored to be on the podcast and, and happy to share you know, what I've learned and to answer your questions. Um, I, I am... A little bit about me. I, I um I'm trained in internal medicine and decided to become an epidemiologist and I wanted to get in prevention. And and ultimately when we talk about the A study, I come from the prevention framework. And it's of course, this is what we've learned is so powerful that it's it's everything from primary prevention to secondary prevention and on to uh, treatment, clinical treatment of people that are that have the consequences so i um because of my interest in prevention i i, I came to the cdc to do study prevention of cardiovascular disease and i, I did that for 10 years and, uh, and around 1990 i met vince Folletti and he came and talked about some of his findings about the impact of sexual abuse on people in his weight loss clinic and mm-hmm. because of my interest in chronic disease epidemiology I, I i was just curious i didn't know what to make of that so um, I, I, I reviewed the literature. I went back, I think, 15 or 20 years and read every abstract, not the whole paper, but every abstract under the heading Child Abuse and Neglect, and, and came up with, um, at the time, there was much good research, but it was sort of scattered, and it, it was not an integrated field. And I think, I think what happened for me is my experience doing chronic disease studies, where things like heart disease are multifactorial come together i'd say i put that together that's how we came up with the a study is, is saying well we we need to measure multiple things that happen to children and measure multiple different kinds of health and social problems which which are routinely done in the big national health surveys and so it was it was just sort of a um it was sort of an intuitive thing that we did I don't know if make, we didn't we, it was intuitive to um to measure multiple childhood traumas and multiple childhood experiences in our survey. Um, all of the ACEs, we measured 10 ACEs and, and to uh, measure as many health and social public health problems in our survey, because that's what's been done in the the major health surveys, public health surveys measure lots of things at one time. And I'd seen that in the surveys. So that's why the ACE study was designed the way that it was, if that makes sense. But, um, and it was it was an intuitive thing. I said, "Well, this is how cardiovascular disease was studied. This is how big public health surveys are done." Um, and uh, you know, the reason that we measured the ten aces from my perspective was I saw in the literature that most studies had only measured one or two things. Um, typically, childhood sexual abuse, or or um, physical abuse, or um, growing up growing up with a mother um, who had maternal depression. These these sort of, you know, single, single kind of experiences, and I, I felt that those needed to be integrated, and so we added, we we measured ten forms of adversity. Um, because of that, But Vince and I, we had no idea how powerful the findings were going to be. That's so my question.
0: I'm... Like, I as a scientist, when you have that, the data comes in, and you get the first scan of the data. Mm-hmm. What was that moment like? For you personally, this is something I've always wondered ah. between you and and Vince Folletti. Uh, yeah. what was that moment like? Like just for me reading your first paper, it was for me it was a light bulb because at that point I'd been studying the brain as a neuroscientist for about 15 years. I know I'm a bit behind, but the literature is so siloed and separate. I was a basic neuroscientist looking for the understanding of the brain's contribution to mental health disorders but I remember the moment reading your paper and it was just like, bang. I'm like, but I had to do that previous work to really integrate your findings with what I had learnt over that time. So what was it like for you as a doctor
1: well, in prevention? I, well, I, I had several moments that were that, um, that stunned and shocked me. The first was when I was the first person to see the data when I saw how common childhood abuse and neglect or growing up um where there's violence or chaos or being raised by people that are have substance use disorders and and, and mental health issues um I I I was deeply saddened I had I had no idea how, and That was what my what, that was my feeling too <laughs> um and I well how did I not I'm a doctor I should how did I not know this and, and 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 not only that. In this particular, this was a group of adults in the Kaiser Health Plan who are mostly college educated, mostly white or Caucasian. Oh my God, is this what our children are experiencing? Um, and then then a, a, as we got into analyzing the the data, the next was um, we we saw that we measured ten adversities, and we saw that. Um, um, very quickly saw that these things don't occur usually one at a time. Where there, where there is one form of adversity in the life of a child, they tend to cluster, not necessarily at a point in time, but they happen either all at once or sequentially during child development. And that it's not appropriate to look at trauma and adversity one type of trauma, adversity at a time. And, 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 and we decided just to add up the 10 and count them each one counted one point, so it was zero to 10. And, and I did a little, since I did the initial analysis, I just created a counting score and, and, and started to look at all of these important public health problems that are important to the CDC. And, and, and almost every one of them went up dramatically. As this A score goes up, there was a powerful dose response relationship to everything, i like, how could this be? How, how could we have been so blind? So as not to know this, but it's be, it's blind because it had never been measured that way. Um, yes. And
0: uh, and yes. I, I took this
1: around it. I took it around to the CDC. I made and made this huge table. I, I I um I taped big pieces together because there were so many tables showing dose response. It was like it was it was about you know, two feet by two feet, and I would unfold it and take it to another person's desk, and they go, oh, that can't be right." You have you you've created something in your data coding. You've created a loop that generates dose-response relationships between human adversity and public health outcomes. You got to go go check go check your database and your coding. And of course, we did that. And this is really true that adversity accumulates. Whatever the physiology and the experience of adversity does, it accumulates so that more n- none is better than than some, but more is worse. And, and given that given that these adversities were so common and the risk increases so dramatically from one to zero, to one, to two, to three, to four, the risks go up really quite rapidly for many of these, especially mental health and substance use disorders, that um, because they're common and the risks increase, when you do the simple math, that means that a large proportion of mental health and substance use disorder, as well as other things, appear to have their origins in these adversities. It's, it's a calculation we do in epidemiology and public health called attributable risk. What percent of a, a, of something that you want to prevent is caused by what you've measured and so forth. For mental health and substance use disorders, the, the percentage that we calculate are caused by exposure to adversity in childhood is is almost always more than 50 percent, sometimes as high as 80 percent. So the majority in a population of these kind of issues are somehow related to Uh, the developmental uh, effects of adversity.
0: When I read your paper, the thing that struck me um, as someone searching to try and understand it, because my sister had schizophrenia, that's what started my search, as you can imagine, and I'm sure you felt the same way, and I don't know if you did this as a scientist, but the first thing you do is go into your own family history.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's quite a yes. distressing thing, and I think that's what we w- want to talk about in the podcast too, about labels and how to use this uh, these findings in a really sensible, mm-hmm. rigorous way. But it is a bit like a heart-sinking moment for a second mm, if yes, you're the person on the other end looking for a reason why your sister got schizophrenia and you didn't, but you might get depression or something like that. And then all of a sudden everything just adds up in a clear moment and you just spent 15 years unpicking the brain to try and understand addiction and developing animal models to study mental health disorders. That's what I would have been doing at that time. Um, so that's the beauty of science, isn't it? It's the crystallization yes. of lots and lots of research and data built on the back of lots of giants before you that then these kind of data are missing because we're not looking in a way
1: yes yeah i think what you just described when i go out and and teach whether i'm doing a in-depth trainings or doing a, a speaking at a conference uh, most people will do what you described as 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 i'm teaching this they're mentally saying well how many of these did i have is this in my family and then they're scanning themselves you know to say, well, does this does this apply to me? Does this help me to understand why my life the way, is the way it is? Or people, you know, my my loved ones or my family or the people that I know, does this help me to understand myself or the people around me better? Which is, and I know we're going to talk more about other things, but I I think the fundamental power of this information is that aha that anyone can have and, and that it that it motivates them to understand themselves better and the people around them better, and to get involved in doing something about it.
0: Exactly. Saying, and that's, how do
1: how do I keep this from happening to the next person or to my child or my grandchildren or my great grandchildren? I'm not even been here yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's um, the and how can I be isn't...
1: how can I have compassion for someone with these kind of issues in their lives because. It's the bio. It's it's their, It's the biology that they've inherited because of the experiences they have. That are we adapt to stress in certain ways that lead to out these things that are these kind of outcomes. So that that kind of compassion and understanding, rather than number one, shaming and blaming people for having, say, a mental health issue or a substance issue or, or any other issue in their lives.
0: Exactly. So you've written more than two hundred publications. You start. I know that the uh, weight loss study was started in 1986, and then you joined the study in the 1990s to conduct the ACEs study and analysis. Um, You work with the CDC, and and you're now featured in the film Resilience. And I'm bringing that up because that this is such an important point, and you just raised it. Then, so it's more than 30 years um, since this work was really started, uh, and. And we've really got strong evidence now that studies have been replicated around the world, across more at-risk populations, et cetera. Even me now, I've been out giving talks since your work and my work combined, uh, since around 2014. I would say it's only since the pandemic uh, in my world in Australia that physicians and scientists and society in general including youth justice, police, and other places, are starting to think about this in a new way and start to integrate this understanding, especially in youth justice um, and police and recidivism, for example. And Mm -hmm. what have you come to see as can you see a shift happening in medical practice uh, and in psychology, social work, and other places?
1: Um, uh, uh, the answer is yes, I, I see a shift happening. And just as you mentioned, I, I see the shifts happening in all human services, whether it's law enforcement, justice, um, education, you know, uh, uh, elementary and pre-K education. So, um, you know, in, in clinical medicine, uh, it, it, it's a, it's, it's much more difficult than it is in some other human services. Uh, when I, when I first started going out to talk about what we had found in the, the profound implications for for public health and clinical practice. Um, it was very difficult, and um, the first few years, uh, uh, whenever I was at, if was, I was invited to do a grand rounds, I'm like, "Oh man, I'm not sure I want to do that," because pushback was so difficult. One, is, the first pushback was, "How do you know that this is a cause and effect relationship?" Because when we first did this, we didn't have we didn't have understand the bio, the neurosciences of this. Yes. Nor or now the epigenetics. So we, we couldn't say exactly how this plays out biologically within a person's body, you know, um as to as to why these outcomes are, are there. And the second one is if you can't tell me exactly how to use it, I'm not going to listen. And I didn't say that, but I I, I walked away feeling like it's too stressful to go talk to these clinical audiences. I, I'd rather I'd rather go talk to social workers or educators or justice audiences who are more, have whose minds aren't trained. Well they see to use it an don't algorithm. They?
0: they really see they, it. Well
1: <laughs> they see it and in, and it's good in medical practice, I, I view medical practice as kind of like an algorithm, you know, a, a series of if then statements. If I see this or I, if I if I hear this or I see this in the exam, or I do uh, some kind of inquiry, a test, or a scan. If, then, if, then, if, then, then, that tells me what to do. And there's a treatment algorithm. And that does not exist for adverse childhood experiences. There's no algorithms. And and so what, what's difficult in clinical practice is what's happening now is there's a tendency to take these numbers, these case scores, scoring a person's ex- experiences from 0 to 10 or higher if you measure other adversities or traumas and because because in medicine we use we like to use numbers for decision making we've done it for decades for many things like using a blood pressure right or using a cholesterol measure and and with those kind of things in in terms of medicine we have standardized measure like for cholesterol, I, the labs are standardized. If I have a cholesterol of some number, say 220, and yours is, we know we're measuring the same thing. Um, and then those were filed by years of, of clinical trials to show that intervening, using a number and then intervening, reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease and that the benefits outweigh the risks of the treatment you apply. And so that's the, the that's I think what I ran into in going out and talking to medical audiences is I I, I want to take this number tell me how to use this number, but but we we don't have first of all the the score is not a standardized measure it can vary the score does not the, mean the same thing from person to person so say I have a say I have an A score I have an A score of one, and um, it was uh, a brief. A brief, but, you know, um, a brief exposure to, say, physical or emotional abuse I'd have an A-score of one. Um, and another person next to me has an A-score of one, and they were sexually abused every day from age four to 12. Right. Well, that's going to be a very different different experience of the biology of stress and the biology of adversity that would generate the p- very different potential or different life consequences developmentally. So or you could say if a person a person with an a score of three has three different experiences that were infrequent and low intensity and I'm I'm the person that has one of them with high intensity chronically de- for many many days or weeks or years. And to say that that the that, that those two risks, you know that 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 the A score risks three person with low intensity frequency exposures, compared to me with repeated eye level intensity of exposure, that, that my risk should be lower than a person with threes risk um, is inappropriate. So does that make sense? So the I mean, measure that we used, you know, a survey, the survey measures are a crude measure of of what I would think of as if we had if we had a measure of the accumulative exposure to the biology of stress that you could measure in a blood sample. We don't have that, right? What we have is a crude measure based upon what people could tell us in a relatively brief survey about what they experienced. So 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 going back to this the biomedical model of wanting to use a number to assign a risk and a treatment, um, it's not appropriate because it doesn't meet the criteria for for that kind of screening. Yes. It's, and it's not a standardized tool and the research using that. The, the necessary follow-on research to say, if I apply a number to someone, I need the research, randomised clinical trials and other things to show that the benefits outweigh the risks. But I don't think we should even go there yet.
0: No, um, until we have the right biomarkers, et cetera. Um, I right. think the thing about, before we move on to the misuse of the ACEs study, which I think is very important for this conversation, I want to ask you the question about, and, and this is what shaped and shifted my mindset around how the brain works and how things happen and why does it, why is one person in the family get something and another person doesn't. I get that question all the time. What I love about the ACEs study is that it puts brain science into something that we call the family secrets, and, uh, and I think that's why everything that stays in silence remains in silence. And this happens Mm -hmm. with child abuse and, uh, neglect. I think neglect and lack of attention between the ages of zero and three is a really real phenomena that people would never attribute it to causing biological toxic stress. No one would even think about your absence or lack of attention being on your phone, for example, around your baby would have an impact, but it does, right? That's one of the aces, uh, do you think as a society, and this might go to the medical practice question too, I found it really interesting that you say, and this happens to me, in audiences people would be scanning themselves, but in medical practice it's always scanning others. And so people aren't necessarily turning it in on themselves to ask the same question about their family mm-hmm. potentially. So as a society, do you think it's been one of the issues for us getting to the where we are now in 2023 is our scaredness, to open the window, pull back the curtain and see what we didn't want. Like you and me, when we saw the mm-hmm. results of the studies, it's painful really, isn't it? So that's been yeah. one of the reasons it's been hindered in its progress too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's painful and it is scary. It's like, um, it's like, uh, uh you know, um, shining, you know, there, there's a dark cave that I'm afraid to look into, you know, something scary in there and, You got to you got to take the this study took the flashlight out, and and illuminated it. Illuminated the reality of the fact that Aces are really common, um, and that this is this is the way collectively the way that our culture and probably cultures many cultures around the world interact with our children. So there's there's two scary parts. One is we we don't wish for this to be happening. And when I see it is, I don't want, I want to look the other way because it's too painful to think about this happening to so many children. And it's also, it's also painful to look at, well, well, how am I treating others? Or how was, how was I treated by people that I interact with because I loved them? Yeah. And so there was this, I had the, I had this idea that, you know, me as, 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 naive to this whole field, when I entered, it's like, well, where does child abuse and neglect happen? And well, it's it, it's it certainly must be rare. The the this this the systems that report it show that it's rare, so it must be rare But it's rarely reported unless you ask people. Um, and and that well, since it's rare, and the ones that you find about are really sort of very troubling and grotesque kind of things that you hear about, and it's like, well, so this the the, the truth must be. That this is rare, and the people that do this are monsters, monstrous human beings. And it's violent. And that's not how it, that's not how it is. It's 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 an everyday occurrence. Most people who who stress their children in various ways, it's not because they're monsters.
0: No, they love it's their children.
1: They love their children, and it's probably because they may have been treated in a similar way, or their lives are so stressful and chaotic that they're they're at which their witch end and that's the best they can do
0: if you don't mind me saying it personally this is that was exactly my experience as a member of a mm-hmm. family of four um mm-hmm. But I went on a different hunt, you know, because my sister was in a lockup ward in 1989. She was given an overdose of haloperidol in a straitjacket, and I'm like, and I was a pharmacist at the time, and I'm like, this doesn't seem right for her small symptoms. Why is she being treated like this? We obviously don't know how the brain works and that mm-hmm. started my search and i did not find any of your work or anything like that because i was a neuroscientist i just had to understand the brain and then i would find the answer and it had to do mm-hmm. with genetic mutations in the disc protein or this you know mm-hmm. I, that was my work i was really because i wasn't didn't understand the brain at all so i literally went down the pathway of learning how the brain works through very basic neuroscience science for a long time and then applying my pharmacist hat to I just had to come up with a better antipsychotic or all of those pathways that you see are still happening out there. This really was very eye-opening and shocking, but it explained everything for me. Mm-hmm. And that was a very difficult moment, but at the same time, when you look at how resilient people are and you then reflect on the 1700s, when people didn't live very long. And, you know, we are a resilient species too. And this is what I love about your new work, trying to be out there teaching people. This is a great scientific tool that gives us knowledge, which is so necessary to move the fields forward of addiction, schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, depression, away from the labels. But at the same time, you're out there saying, please don't now apply another label to someone who is sitting in your audience who's 50, who's might have experienced 10 aces, but they're now 50 years old and raised a family. And yes, they might be replicating some of the things, but they're also very strong and resilient. And that's why I guess you featured in the film Resilience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I think, uh, you know, I think that I'm going to get back to, I think, something I said earlier is is that that compassion and understanding are extremely powerful. And I, you know, I am I, I became a public health guy. Like, what's the real public health power of this information? Is is that it is it is changing from shame and blame and fear and to compassion and understanding so that we can do things differently. And you know, we we I think we're probably gonna end up talking about healing and neuroplasticity. Yes. And and I, I think, you know, what, what is the effect of being treated with compassion and understanding when you're used to shame and blame? How does that affect a human being's physiology? How does how does it affect my how does it affect my circuitry, my neuroplasticity? I mean, what is what is the power of loving, compassion, and understanding? And um and 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 being released from the the continuing adversity of shame and blame or or being being denied access being at, denied access to employment or if you're a child being um being um suspend, expelled from school because of the developmental biologic consequences of experiences that you had no control over and and that you don't have control over of the biology of your own sequential neurodevelopment and how your experiences frame that. So your 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 the, the what I see in our society is um is um is a society that didn't know any better because we didn't know this that takes people affected by adversity and tends to make it worse. We call that when when we go out and teach, my partner, I go out and teach. We call that um, the progression of adversity in the life course. Oh, it's like a tumbleweed. So you say you're a child who has difficulty managing emotion or recognizing faces or, um, um, uh, you know, you have different styles of attachment to another human being. And it's hard. It's hard for the people to do their job what they see their jobs in the school. And so you you label them and blame them. And then they end up going to the principal's office and they get expelled and where do they go. And then then they end up in the juvenile justice system. Right. And then in the in the adult prison system. That is is piling adversity on adversity, and it continues to accumulate. And then how does that person, whether it's that pathway or other pathways of progression, when they grow up to be adults, the same types of adversities that they had experienced growing up are present in their life as an adult, called adult adversities, and it's a cycle. Um, I may have a low-wage job. I may have a mental health issue. Uh, I may have a chronic illness. Um, um, I, I have difficulty regulating my own emotions. Um, I have difficulty uh, with relationships. I have difficulty with my spouse or partner. And now I'm raising a child. And some of those at adult adversities could have been maybe prevented, or the, the severity of those issues, the intensity of those issues, if our society responded differently every step of the way from the intrauterine environment to the environment in infancy and and 3K elementary school on into adolescence and adult life, our society has not known how to respond in a way and seeing that these are biologic adaptations and and seeing seeing people with compassion and saying "Is, is how we are responding to other people helping them or hurting them and asking that question every step of the way in a, very, in a systemic fashion for every aspect of our society and including clinical medicine.
0: And I think this is this comes to the question of we always want to, we find this information and we're like, wow, we've got to, yes, it's really important to help the children, but it's also important to to um, help all the adults that are surrounding all the children first, in a way, because they're all they're not healing from their own aces, and then they're perpetrating mm-hmm. them down the generations without realization. But we tend to always want to go and do something more and teach the children um, and mm-hmm. uh, and students. And I see that a lot when the teachers themselves or the people in the system—police, uh, lawyers, etc., doctors—they're not. Even healing their own aces, if you know what I mean. So that's a big yes. passion of mine is to teach the adults to come up with strategies to help them heal their own aces first, so that we can then put more better, healthy adults around children.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, I, I, that's. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a it's a very important um, uh, conceptual and practical point that I believe needs to be made, which is which is. These are this is person-to-person transmission. If if we if we didn't know that this was um was adversity or trauma, you it almost could say it looks like a virus. And in medicine, we talk about preventing vertical transmission of lots of viruses, usually from from mother to child during pregnancy or or other and it's like well. When we talk about adults, we'd have to step back and go, we want to help the children. But where is this, where is the t- point of transmission? Where are the points of transmission? Where are the most important places where this is transmitted? And I, I believe that the most important initial places of transmission are within between caregivers or parents and child. There are other there are many other other places where if this was a vibe, but that's where the primary transmission occurs when i when i um the way i treat another person stimulates the five senses and it gets taken in and processed to decide whether it's a threat or it's something i want to you know whether it's threatening or not that makes sense so you can't see it it's like a virus you can't but it is being transmitted and that's something that that i realized that i i think this vague notion that i have that well it's just psychological just something in the ethers no i am Creating a biologic response to every person that I interact with in any way, whether it's the way my face looks or my smile or the way I smell or whatever, we we are constantly transmitting experience to each other, um, and and that can have a lasting biologic impact. That's another thing that that this work and the kind of work that you do is like we're starting to be able to measure what that looks like. Just what experiences are these? And and how does it influence um, human development, um, or how does it influence human behavior and human well-being, not only in childhood but even into adult life and older adult life. Um,
0: and I think and it's, it's a simple. great point that you raise that even though we don't like to talk about this because it is hard, this is a hard conversation. And I'm going to read a paragraph from Gabor Mate's book, if you don't mind, a, a, from Jack <laughs> Shonkoff's work, um, but. This primary relationship of the highest point of transmission that would have the biggest impact outside all the other mentors around, around healthy adults around the child. Unfortunately, it is a child that is always looking for attention from their parents. It's it must be a biologic, uh, biological evolutionary drive that we have for keeping us safe in the early stages, naught to three. Um, and that's that. That is the point where people may not realise the power of that relationship. But if a parent is carrying a lot of aces. It's, it is very difficult without healing and recognizing in yourself to not transmit them under stress and trauma of raising a family and in a society that is very individualistic. Everything's on the individual now, I think not just in America or Australia, but it's kind of happening all around the world. This idea that you've got to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, it's, that whole idea it takes a village to raise a child has kind of been thrown out the window somewhere along the line. Yeah. Sure. But but that primary point of transmission is critical. And then we can move out to different circles of healthy adults, whether it's, you know, coaches or school teachers or all sorts of other adults, sibling, you know, older siblings, et cetera. But that that point of transmission is so critical. It's a really difficult one as a parent myself who didn't realize your work until I'd raised my kids. I got to mm. re- intervene when my daughter was 14, knowing there was another window of neuroplasticity mm. <laughs> to try and stop some kind of transmission because I am just a human being too and uh, trying to run a big lab and do all of those things that you do with a two-parent family working and careers, et cetera. So uh, I'd like to go back and do it over, but you can't, right? That's all of us out there. But that recognition that us adults listening on this podcast are mainly adults is is this is not scary stuff? This is really empowering, beautiful things, and it will change your understanding of your brothers and sisters, your mother and father, and your relationship. And at any point, you can change the way you transmit to your kids. Right? Even if you are
1: older and they're older, for example. Yes. Yes. Um, I know. I it changed the way that um, that I looked at at my children. Now uh, they were. They were like um preteen or teens when I learned started to learn this. And it made me sit at the dinner table and go, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I speaking to them the way I'm speaking to them? And I am I, am I stressing my child? And if I am, why? It's usually because I, it's a behavior that I've learned to do based upon what society tells me parents and children should do with each other or, or the way that, uh, that I've learned to do it. Um, so we have to. We're on learn. We're on learning old things and learning new ones. Well, children about, were to be seen and
0: not heard too, weren't they, yeah. Doc uh, Rob? Yeah. At one, point, I mean, yeah. over generations. Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I, it it also applies to adult life. I um, here's an example. Um, here's an example of uh, getting back to what I believe the fundamental power of this information is, um, which is changing the way we uh, treat each other and relate to each other. Uh, I was in um, I was at the uh, at a um, at the at a as a reservation the the uh, in uh, in Wyoming a few years ago and mostly Native American people there and at the end of my presentation about aces a woman um, probably in her 40s came up and she she was tears were streaming down her face but she was looked joyful and she said um well, well thank you for this presentation now I can love my mother better. And, and we know that in, in um, indigenous uh, communities, uh, you know, in most around the world as well, in the U.S., is, they, they have, um, as a group, have had the most adversity in their lives. And so uh, she didn't say anything more than that. But I just said, well, you know, her mother, her mother is maybe challenging. But now, now she can uh, she can look at her mother and the way she presents herself, the issues that she brings along with her um, with love and compassion. As opposed to saying, my mother is really hard to, you know, she's a real pain, you know. <laughs> so, what will that do for her mother? Her mother probably has has some, you know. You're the neuroscientist, you know. I don't know how old she is. Does she have neuroplasticity. Can you know? Can Can her quality of life improve? Can you change change in um, change the way she does things? And I don't know. Do you call that resiliency? Where do we get that from? You know. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah.
0: So I, the audience is going to be really interested in how do we use this? Uh, we don't want people to be labelled with their A score, and and that's you've been clearly trying to get people to understand that this is just a way to see things in a new way. But there's also many things that people have inherited that are resilience scores, as well that mm-hmm. are protective factors mm-hmm. they may have had one parent that was really overcoming the other parent's adversity, or they've got grandparents, or they've got mentors or teachers. And I've got many examples of this on my podcast. And there's many examples of people that have overcome very large number of aces by applying without realizing it neuroplasticity to their life that have gone on to become incredible people. You mm-hmm. know, so I guess people listening would be so Dr. Ander, tell us how we heal from our aces. What's the best um, advice you have, in your experience of being out there in the field in this work?
1: Oh gosh, you know, wow, that's such a big question. I know. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, I I, I want to let let's. Uh, I'm going to back up to the beginning of, of your introduction to this topic and and say that um, say that in terms of when we're talking about um, research. Um, now I'm very cautious about the use of resiliency scales in studies when we're measuring both trauma and adversity and resiliency at the same time. It's extremely complex in, in our own work, in our own work. We had positively worded questions that you would con- that now people are saying that would be considered in some of these ways of measuring things as as part of a resiliency measure. Um the the um the as adversity scores went up, the resiliency, the resiliency crude resiliency scale went down inversely. Yeah And given that they're both crude measures, I think we need to be careful when we're as these new scales are coming together and it's very exciting say so, well how does how do the good things that happen in my life buffer me? Do they buffer me? And if they do buffer me, how much in and what way from the developmental and in, in your case in neuroscientific studies to how my brain wires and develops and functions in life? Um, it's very tricky. Um, so th- so I'm just I, I want to put out a note of caution. I think one of the first Notes of caution, and I'm not. I, I had somebody. I got an angry email from somebody saying, "Well, you're against resiliency." Like, no, <laughs> I'm not. No, not. Uh, but but let's be thoughtful about what we're talking about. And one of the first things that 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 I was concerned about is it would take our take the eye off the prevention price. The prevention prize is the prevention of the transmission of adversity from one person to another. And mostly when we think about it, it's usually from caregiver to child or caregivers to children. If 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 we start thinking that if well, if we do other things that these other effects are going to go away, then then we're back where I believe why I did the A study with Vince. We've got to stop trying to fix things after they've gone wrong. Oh definitely. And so it can it can be like, well, there's no there's no like a uh, um, eraser. That erases our experience of adversity. I don't believe that.
0: No. So from a neuroscience point of view, Dr. Anda,
1: yeah.
0: why why is it that the adversity outweighs 10 resilience factors? Is because of the way the brain's wired for safety. Evolutionarily, mm-hmm. it's I mean very odd. Right. that part of the brain that takes in something that's traumatic, especially in a very young before, before birth, but up to the age of three when the neuroplasticity is very much turned on. There's no turning off anything. It's all on. So negative things go into the brain at a much faster rate than positive Mm -hmm. things. And you see that Mm -hmm. all the time, right? And this wires Mm -hmm. that part of the brain to then be like an antenna to receive even more of it, unless we do something to protect the transmission. So that's the neuroscience explanation of why adversity outweighs resilience. And it takes a lot of resilience factors to overcome some extreme adversity. So um, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt about the science behind why that is the case. Um, And that's why this is so important that people are aware of this and to break the points of transmission and prevention, it'd be my number one goal on the podcast. Absolutely. But then there's a lot of people listening that are 30 to 70, for example, and they want to not pass it on to their grandchildren, or they want to Heal from it themselves with the recognition of the new knowledge. So you know, it's it's such a complicated thing, and we don't want to yeah, blame people either, do we?
1: No, of course not. And you know, the um, you know, one of the things that you that that comes up in this context frequently when I go out and teach or or do trainings is, well, you know, why does one person why does one person that had similar experience of trauma and adversity look like you know have have certain characteristics while this other person doesn't. And it's like, that is so complex. It's like, well, when did it occur? Did it occur during what uh, critical period of neurodevelopment? Mm-hmm. Maybe one person received it when they were, you know, received the input, the adversity during a critical period, the other did not, or which critical period?
0: Absolutely. Or,
1: or, or were these sequential over time during different periods of neurodevelopment where, where the, the the integrated huge integrated system that the brain represents is going to manifest in many different ways.
0: Absolutely, and if I give you a, just a straight up personal story example, and not just my family but others, it can be as simple as birth order. And you're going to say to me, mm-hmm. "What do you mean by well?" You know what I mean. It means like say an eldest child, the first child is born, they get all the attention from the grandparents, the parents. And then another child is born, but then there's another one straight on top of that one, meaning that the middle yes. child in that in that order, and you'll see this in large families, there's just no time for the same amount of attention that buffers a lot of things that have come before between the ages of zero and three. Mm-hmm. So that one factor you would never even think about, you'd miss, to be honest, because you th- mm-hmm. see four kids, the same parents, same environment, same food, same schools. How can that person end up with a mental health disorder that's quite more extreme than than the ones siblings surrounding them, and it could be yes. as simple as that. And obviously, there's more factors that build on top of that thing. But you would never even think of that, would you, as a member mm-hmm. of a family, for example?
1: Right, right. Or 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 the older sibling bullies the younger sibling as well. Yes, or or sexually assaults the younger sibling. In the, in the, you know, I'm... there's so many. Factors. I don't want to be more, but you know, it just it's so complex that. Um, it's worth thinking about. But from my perspective at this point in time, um, the extent that we spend a lot of time pursuing answers to those very difficult questions detracts us from well, why did we do the ACE study? You know, exactly. Because this doesn't it doesn't have to be this way. And you know, coming we, we want to prevent the intergenerational transmission university, and we want to prevent our human service systems from layering on more adversity as someone that
0: works at the cdc and you saw the big effort globally around preventing the transmission of COVID 19 and then the development of the vaccines do you must do you ever sit back i certainly do and think this is the greatest public health issue the aces and other things that affecting Mm -hmm. people's you know development all these huge worldwide problems why don't we have the same approach in terms of prevention
1: um, I think we'll go back to where it's scary, and it's um it's easy to feel immobilized. Um, one of the things one of the things that I'm seeing I saw years ago and less so now is like whose problem is this? Who's gonna who is going to own this? Do I own this out of my silo of um, prevention of HIV through the sexual kind of sexual behaviors or or um, intravenous drug use? That that adversity tends to lead to, right? And how do I view this? Am I threatened? Is my is the funding for my silo and my staffing threatened because I need to share my resources with everybody else at the CDC? I need to share this with educators and the juvenile just Like, how do and, and and um, what does that look like? How how as a collective culture do we stop looking through a pinhole at what's happening around us so we see what we only know and expand that out to say, how do we come together collectively to say, in my role as a person preventing the transmission of HIV, how does what I do help the um, kindergarten teacher? And i'm not saying directly but how how do we share collective responsibility human resources and champion each other whether it's whether it's the way we do things and where we spend our time or how how we um you know from a government or granting perspective where do we put these precious resources um, and you know with, with the caveat that i that i when i saw the initial a study work is we can't spend our way out of this, right? There's, we can't, we can, there's not, we, the, the, the calculations of the economic cost of adverse childhood experiences have, are vastly underestimate the collective cost and all the ways that that can be measured of what this is. Everyone is affected in one way or another. Um, so, um, I'm sort of going off the rails here but just, you know what uh, how do we how do we collectively change the way we do things um and a, a, from a cultural perspective
0: um, So if you don't mind Dr Ando I'd just like to um read a paragraph from Gabo Mate's book um mm-hmm. just to have a conversation around this forcing the brain in the wrong direction from his chapter on the sabotage of childhood and there they have a quote from Nelson Mandela that there can be no better revelation of a society's soul than the way it treats its children. That's a Nelson Mandela yes. quote. And the start of the chapter says, "Do you ever get accused of mother blaming?" So that's a question to you and I. And I was asked the I asked the Harvard-based pediatrician and researcher Jack Shonkoff. I'm sure you know very well. Yes. And he says, "I worry about this a lot." Um, if we walk, if we talk about how influential the environment of relationships is, you can end up on a slippery slope with people saying parents are doing a bad job. It's their fault. whose uh, His work has illuminated, like yourselves, uh, looking at the science of early development. Then they summed up the core dilemma faced by anyone who tries to engage with these issues honestly. You can't say that parents are you you can't say that parents are incredibly important in the lives of their children yet if there's a problem it has nothing to do with the parents. Yeah. But the truth yes. is parents don't raise their children in isolation from society and this is what we're talking about now is that it's not just we talk about a break a way to break the primary transmission, but it also is us working in a society. So that's why it's such a difficult and vexed issue that we're trying to discuss of how to heal from Aces. It can't be just on the individual.
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, you know, we we are at a time where where what we are talking about during this podcast, so you and I both are, are have been immersed in in various ways in understanding what we're talking about today um most most people most people at least that i know here in in the u.s don't know what we're talking about most people don't understand um uh you know uh, about what aces are and they add up and how that works biologically they don't understand sequential brain development you know they, they would they would um they would not would not know most of what we're talking about and and so i i think that that um what what i am dedicating myself to do do is trying to trying to reach critical mass in a, in a on a population scale of of how many people could really relate to what we're talking about so that they don't blame others or they don't say i've been a bad mom because right you're a bad mom you're a bad dad I uh, or I'm one you are um, so that so that they can understand what we're talking about so that we can come together collectively to raise our children and and stop perpetuating the cycle of adversity and and to be um, what i see when i go out and teach it's almost like even standing up at a podium you're looking out at the audience and you see people's faces change It's like a light, there's a light goes off and they suddenly they're drawn in and they're probably scanning their own lives and they're going and that I I believe that this information for many people provides a meaning in their lives that they never had before and it creates an incentive and a new purpose to prevent what we're talking about. And once that is done, on, until that is done on scale, where some significant minority or majority of any population, has the light bulb go off, the culture won't change. I, I believe that the culture, the culture will change from the bottom, not, not the top down. That's what I believe. Oh,
0: yeah, I, so, see, I see that. So, too. you
1: know, I, I appreciate this podcast, but we have a huge way that we, we understand so much, so much fundamental stuff that's important now. And and my what I what I think what is most important next is is how do we get this information to everyone so that they can have a change moment um, and 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 have their own flashlight looking into the dark cave um, of wh- what's around them or in their own life that they've been afraid of or didn't didn't know enough to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's many things that I've learned that I, one of them was when I, when I, um, when I saw the ACE study data, that ACEs are common. then you can scale them, add them up. And that as they go up, so does the risk for all kinds of things. After I thought about it for a while, I'm like, well, of course, this is biology. This is, you know, the stress, stru- accumulation of stress is going to have an impact on people. And that, and that well we've measured these 10 aces in their comments so people must not know this about themselves they don't they need help with the story you know uh so so i'm i'm on the sort of public health side of this is is public education of everyone professionals of course but everybody
0: but you don't this recommend is, this is like, like just
1: like knowing that there's gravity if you fall off a flight of stairs Gravity pulls you down, and things happen. You know, but this you don't is,
0: recommend it using as a screening tool, though. That's very important to you to that so it's not misused as well.
1: No, no, I, I don't. I do not recommend it using a, as a screening tool as the um, as the clinical biomedical approach to find screening. And 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 this is where there's there's uh, confusion here. Um, in the bi- biomedical approach, screening means taking a number moving towards diagnosis and treatment generally right um, and then in other settings screening means asking a person questions to get to know them you know in medicine in medicine as a medical student i learned to take a history a life history if if it's used as a life history tool to understand another person in any setting including medicine i think it can be extraordinarily useful and lead to healing if it's used as a i'm going to use my number to label you as as being a person that has a risk or that you have some you have some kind of physiologic state and the one the term that's used is toxic stress if your a score is four or more you have toxic stress we better do something about that well may or may, number one what is toxic stress I, I don't know where that term came from i'm not fond of it um does it mean that I that my that my body physiology is different than a person whose day score is not four more? You can't measure that. It's not measurable. Not really. So, so screening. This the screening paradigm that's been widely promoted, including I said the the most the most powerful paradigm that's missed, I believe, is misusing this as a screening tool is the one in California. And it's very popular. And people love it. But I, my personal belief is, is it's misguided to use use getting information about people's childhood adversity and scoring it and giving a number, assigning risk, and then deciding on treatment or referral or some kind of education that says that, well, you're at risk, so you're different. Um, if it were to be used as a health history tool to say, if this is what you experienced, um, well, you know, people that have those, you know, how, how Vincent Folletti was is so brilliant. What he did in his clinic is he, he would say, well, how do you think that's affected you? So that people can tell you that and you don't assign it to them because it's not appropriate to, to assign risk from an epidemiologic study, which is an average risk to a person. Um, and this is, this is what's happening in these screening studies, and I understand why, but it's because people who are using it have not been properly educated to understand what they're using. What when are you were, the strengths?
0: saying also to me about the person at Harvard doing imaging of around how people have different drug responses depending on their symptoms and, and related to their yes. underlying ACE score.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah. Well, that that would that would be an example of of you of taking a Let's say you're interested in depression, and I'm I'm just sort of I, this is this is something that was taught to me that from listening to Marty Teicher and reading some of his work. Mostly listening to what he says is is if you depression is not one disorder, it's a cluster of symptoms. And this is, I think, what uh, if Marty was there, I hope this is accurate on um, um, that. It, it appears as though the cluster of symptoms that we call depression. Is a different entity if it's related to the accumulation of trauma, traumatic stress or the cumulative adversity, compared to people who have not had that experience. It's a nonspecific set of symptoms that may have an underlying um, etiology in terms of the the functioning, how the brain functions to produce those symptoms. And that the treatments, the treatments for one group may not work well for another group. Say the treatments that we use for people that have not experienced a lot of adversity and trauma, that might work pretty well. It may not work at all for the other group, the people with high adversity, high trauma history, it may make them worse. And that I this this is these are the kind of questions them um, this is not screening, this is a research question. Right? Yeah. Um eventually eventually it might be used to discern how to treat, but we're not there yet. So I don't know if that that it's it, it may seem like a subtle point, but that's the use of these kind of metrics or these kind of measures if you if a metric is used for them to to then say what can I image. Or can I do trials to say and and knowing if I don't know the history, then I can't tell from a trial of a treatment why one group responds differently than another. And this is th- th- this is secondhand knowledge for me, so I'm hoping I hope I'm doing it credit, but it makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, uh, also, I um, mean we, we know with most treatments, pharmaceutical treatments for depression and other things, there's always only about a 30% response rate, which is why a lot of the companies are pulled out of these spaces. But once you understand this research, it makes complete sense to me um, why some treatments work and some don't, for example.
1: And, and, you know, and and also others, I think another place where their concern has been expressed to me, but since I'm not treating, treating children is children, Children have the a childhood equivalent of PTSD. Can exhibit certain behaviors in a classroom, for example. So, well, that's ADD, that's ADHD. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If there is such a clean, such clean thing as a pure ADD, ADHD. But children that have experienced a lot of trauma and stress and don't feel safe and have very different experiences may exhibit the same kind of cluster of symptoms and be treated with the medications that are used to treat ADD, ADHD? And is that appropriate? And does it do harm to those children that well, make it worse?
0: Well, some data I've seen on that is that some of the medication, if it is on a people that are hypervigilant from a lot of ACEs, can actually, the drug treatment can actually make them worse. Right. And so, um, I, I can tell you now in uh, out of care home children, they're on a lot of medications. Mm-hmm as well. So I don't know what that cocktail does on top of ACEs
1: mm-hmm. as well. Including antipsychotic anti medi- antipsychotics and a lot of other things, multiple, multiple polypharmacy.
0: Yeah.
1: Let's make, we can make those symptoms go away, but you know, what do you what are you doing?
0: You know, I know it's terrible. Make really them weird.
1: easier to manage. Yeah.
0: So um where where obviously this is your life purpose and you've contributed a lot. What what do you how do you hope we could scale this knowledge in an appropriate way that can be integrated across our society to make a difference to the next generation?
1: Well, scaling it, you know, I can only do what I can do, so I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, you know, I I work with my colleague Laura Porter, who's just incredible. Um, colleague who took this and applied this at community level for many years in Washington. We, we do, we go to conferences and speak and uh, I, we, we have a train the trainer model where we take groups of usually multi-disciplinary groups of people and spend three days with them to um, to talk in detail about the many things that we've, we've touched upon during this podcast so that they can go out and train speakers that your classic train the trainer model, and that's that's the only way that I know, um, you know, that I personally can help to scale that up and that that there, there will be a potential ripple effect. Um,
0: I think it would be helpful in addiction I, clinics because I still see the same thing happening in addiction where people don't understand mm-hmm. addiction is an outcome of adversity. I think one of your mm-hmm. biggest data plots, because I'm an addiction neuroscientist, the one that really sticks in my mind is the IV a heroin of in women and the percentage of a, a score in those women was real, like 80%. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we see that same kind of thing with addiction or go, go into, uh, um, an adult prison system, you know, with the, it's multiple studies measuring that, what does it look like in prisons? How, why did they get there? Sometimes it's drug use or other things. Um, but, um, so, uh, you know, there is no, um, I have mixed feelings about this. There, there is there is a relatively small amount of resources from the high um, U.S. government level committed to saying what what do we know? How do we teach? How do we do? What what does public education look like? How do we say that if if, if this is the most important preventable public health problem? And if you believe it's appropriate, and I believe it is, if it's appropriately to 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 um, apply mass that to, to think that every person should have some knowledge of this so that they can understand this fundamental determinant of their own health and the health of people around them. Um, why are why aren't we spending spending the money to develop something like that and saying we're doing this? We're going to go out and teach everyone, and and the impediment is, Mm. the impediment is that I first after I this goes back years, uh, you know I said I, I went to at the CDC I went to other people at the CDC said it's time for public education program. Look how important this is. Don't you think everybody should know this? And I said, Rob, what's the intervention? I'm like, I don't know. It's like we're used to. Single problem, silver bullet. Is there an immunization? Is there a medication? Is there, you know, I, I'm like that. That's that is that is a. Um, I understand that problem. I, you know, I understand why you say. Well, unless what do, do we need a randomized trial to show that public education about this improves population health? And I think I think that's where I think that's where the screening initiative where the wheels come off of that. It's it's a similar line of thinking. It's just that screening is not appropriate. We want to we want to apply the information, but using a score as a screening tool. is not So it's a, sort of a similar impulse. And so I don't know what the answer to this. Um, you know, um, y- you may want to interview some high level U.S. government people that I won't mention <laughs> or, or go to those in, you know, go in, and, and I you know, it's easy for me now. Um, I'm not at the C D C anymore, and I'm um is to um say, Well, what if anything are you doing? Where are you how um, are you using your resources? Do you believe that public that's time is it time for public education? Yeah. Well we did it with smoking. Who's, who's
0: con- yeah, we did it, we did it
1: with smoking and we we've done it um We've done did. it for um, cardiovascular, dis- HIV, uh, HIV prevention. We say, well, you know, do you know that's a virus? Do you know that if you engage in certain activities, these this list of activities, um, you know, that, you know, people change their behavior when they get information they can use to help themselves.
0: Absolutely, this especially is, their it, it children. Becomes,
1: it, well, it becomes more subtle when we're talking about, does it change how I do treat someone else? Yeah, right. That that's where it's you know it gets trickier and it gets scary. You know you can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me you know that's my I have my autonomy and my authority and there's you know don't don't interfere with family life or don't tell me don't don't tell me I you know don't tell me and I don't think that's what this is. It's not telling us how to raise our children. It's saying here's what you might do to your child that has that has certain effects that you really don't want
0: but with smoking it was the same wasn't it like people didn't want to be told that they couldn't smoke but somehow it took 25 years or more but somehow the conversation then tipped didn't it but i feel like this is similar um, in some ways this is harder because it's so much in the family and we're so taught that what's in the family is no one else's business in a way but I feel like if you if you know that this is going to make a healthier child, many people want to optimize everything for their kids, right? They have them playing piano and violin and extracurricular activities and all of this sort of thing. That's how much they want their kids to go to Harvard. But this is the fundamental thing that will prevent them from reaching their potential. So I think there's an element there, but I guess it'll be the people that are always doing things anyway that will take in the information. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, you just when you brought up smoking, it's I think it's maybe worthwhile for your audiences. You've sort of dipped into the history books here for me. Of um, you know, this uh, smoking is one of the primary reasons that I that I got involved doing this study. Within so before I met him, I was looking at the epidemiology of smoking, and and I had seen what you just described in this. You know, we knew for many years this was in the eighties when I was doing this studying cardiovascular disease. Well. Why are there still twenty-five percent of people smoke? Oh, well, you know, do we need to educate them better? Do we need to develop better pamphlets? If we just told them differently, they would quit. And I thought, yeah. And I, I you know, I, 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 I did a study with other colleagues at CDC where we published a paper looking at depressive symptoms and smoking. The more depressive symptoms the people had in the 80s in the United States, the higher their probability of smoking. And then when you follow them prospectively, longitudinally, the less likely they are be able to quit. And it was at the time I don't, you know, it, I don't know where the addiction field was, but this idea of self-medication struck me. People writing about, it's like, well, of course, you've got nicotine helps. There's, it's a functional behavior, right? And so this that, that's a that's a classic example of how understanding how adversity leads to differences in the way the brain works or, or, or other parts of the way we operate in our lives is it's functional. You know, for people in extreme emotional pain. Who've had a lot of adversity, it's probably functional to take opiates. You know, at least for a while. But then yeah. it doesn't work.
0: When we've got people quitting um, smoking, then they're taking up other things, right? Because we're not actually yeah. treating the causes is what you're alluding mm-hmm. to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, so this, is, this, is, this is an example of sort of the, the fundamental frame shift of how we look out at, at, at ourselves and the people around us that says we're all adapting. We're very adaptive creatures. And one of the things we do as adaptive creatures is we try to feel safe. And we try to feel okay. I don't know what you call that. You know, the word homeostasis comes out, but I'm not sure what homeostasis means. I try to feel okay, but don't feel okay. I'll do something. To try to feel better. You know, if I'm if I'm anxious or nervous, I'll go for a run, or you know, a, um If I'm feeling depressed, there's things that I can do. So we all do that all the time. It's just that some people uh, um, some people have to do more or do things differently as a way of adapting. To the way that they were uh, shaped from a neurodevelopmental perspective.
0: And their parents, too, and their grandparents. Like, this is yes. across generations, too. It's not like yes. you're undoing something from one generation. That's why it's so impactful. And I guess I raise that a lot because a lot of effort and time and resources are spent on unpicking all the reasons, too. Like, that's another issue that ends up happening, too, where people that have a lot of trauma become counselors or whatever to help other people yeah. but sometimes they can yeah. be passing that down too because yes we start to think it's all about that you just need to understand it and yes you do but yeah. there's also a point where you've got to heal from it to
1: right. to
0: break the point of transmission
1: yeah well you know this is going out way out there but we've inherited on the evolution of what we were before we were punished even.
0: I know. I talk about that a lot.
1: How is how how is the way we use all of that, um, you know, today, and how does adversity affect The basic basic instincts that we all have within us that uh that, that drive the way we the way we move and the way we think and the way we behave. Our basic instincts are many of those. I think are um part of what we see as manifestations of adversity. How those get changed and how they're different between people, things that drive us that we don't even think about.
0: I like the idea of a public education campaign. Um, people don't like to hear that as a response to something like this to raise knowledge, but knowledge and education have always raised boats across every generation and over across many centuries because you only have to look back a couple of centuries to see how we used to handle before the germ theory for example how we used to yeah. handle infection mm-hmm. and that's not that long ago in history to be honest so I mm-hmm. hold a lot of hope and uh, for our future by mm-hmm. changing the conversation in these different platforms we have now long as we don't label people and send them down another bad pathway right do no harm right that's the message uh, right so use your knowledge to make a difference that's helpful to people not more harmful to people uh i think that's our joint message to everyone listening uh, i want to thank you for pursuing this work over 30 years and it's not easy work to i, I don't know if ever looking back in time you want to stay cardiovascular or you're really grateful that you found this
1: <laughs> yeah i i, I think uh, my, my my training prepared me to do this before did they all, everything that i did before getting involved in the age study was all part of being i believe that i was this is what i was meant to do and that life prepared me to do this
0: yeah that's wonderful we're very lucky to have had it fall in your hands and not someone else's that would have kept it out of the sphere of and to have you in uh Dr. Folletti, uh encouraging the public discourse on this too, not just letting it die in the scientific journals, which a lot of things do in these kind of spaces. So um, I'm really grateful for you giving you, us your time, Dr. Ander, today on the Thriving Minds podcast. Um, it's incredible. People are very lucky to have this opportunity to hear your voice and to hear how you came up with it and the direction that we want to take it in. And it's just very powerful message and we're really grateful thank you so much
1: well thank you i'm honored by the opportunity and grateful to have this time to spend with you and and to um to try to communicate effectively so uh, good, good luck with your podcast
0: oh thank you so much